Hey everyone, Curtis here. We are back with the latest in our not-quite-weekly mini-series of what Curtis read this week podcasts for Black History Month and a month or so after. How's that for an intro sentence? Ha! Well, in any event, I am working my way through the book African American Religious History, a documentary witness, edited by Milton C. Cernet, and each episode I'm offering a couple of short thoughts on what I thought was interesting and or important from my reading over the past week. This episode, we're looking at the primary source documents from the period between the World Wars, which you may already know is the time of what's often called the Great Migration, when large numbers of African Americans moved from life in the Jim Crow South to mainly the cities in the northern United States. This migration greatly changed the demographics of much of the country, and several of the selections in the book recount some of the challenges and changes that resulted in the black church as a result as well. Several of the chapters focus on the church in the black neighborhoods of Chicago that saw a great influx of people who had, up until their trip north, lived in the rural south. One of the churches that saw significant needs that needed to be met for the largely poor new arrivals was Olivet First Baptist, under the leadership of Reverend Lacey Kirk Williams. The church, seeing the change in demographics in its neighborhood, undertook a massive survey of the area, sending church members out to knock on doors and ask about the needs of those who now lived around the church. Their findings then affected the ministry of Olivet First Baptist and what it was doing in the community, and it resulted in the church becoming perhaps the largest Protestant congregation in the country at the time, with over 13,000 members, and this is in 1920 and thereabouts. Kirk wrote in the Chicago Tribune at the time that the people arriving in Chicago had come north with, quote, a desire for new, better environments and living conditions, a desire for justice and better police protection, a desire for the best educational advantages, wider industrial opportunities, and better wages and improved religious opportunities, but that they hadn't all found what they were looking for. The result was that while the black population of Chicago had increased by 145% in the years from 1916 to 1920, at the same time church attendance had only increased 45%. The reason for this, in Williams' estimation, is that the churches of Chicago were too stuck in their ways and unwilling to change in light of the changing reality around them. The existing churches, he writes, are often more interested in preaching, worship, ceremonies, the things of the sanctuary, than they are of the urgent, vital needs of struggling humanity. They offer a Godward and heavenward gospel, and too little of the manward and the earthward. As it is now, he writes, most of our church houses are only suitable for paying, praying, and preaching. One of the important things that ran through this part of the book was the sheer breadth of activity many black churches and denominations were undertaking. The black church continued to be the hub of the community, as we've seen in past episodes, and one of the most interesting pieces was a report from the secretary of the Women's Convention of the National Baptist Convention denomination. It's a lengthy piece that outlines the multitude of initiatives the Baptist women were leading. It's written by a woman whose force of personality jumps off the page, named Nanny Burroughs. She, I learned, delivered a stirring address in 1900 when she was 22 years old and the secretary of the Foreign Missions Board of the same denomination, and it was called How the Sisters Are Hindered from Helping, and it was a shot across the bows of the male leadership of a denomination where women far outnumbered the men among parishioners and those active in those parishes. One of the initiatives that she calls for in this piece, um, the piece that's in this book, which was a report to the denomination in 1920, is for the improvement of the church facilities in the denomination 
and a couple of her recommendations <laughs> made me laugh out loud. She writes about the inadequate church buildings in general, and then the toilets in particular. The toilets, she writes, in most churches are stenchy and neglected. Many of them are so situated that to enter them, men and women are brought into embarrassing contact with each other. As far as the East is from the West, so far should the restroom and conveniences provided for the women be put from those provided for the men. Later, she writes about the deplorable state of decoration in the church, including a lack of fresh flowers. Artificial flowers, she says, are an evidence of an artificial, lazy, thoughtless leadership. (laughs) But I don't want to give the impression that the whole report is taken up by interior decorating and architecture. She has sharp words to say about everything from foreign missions to the work of the churches among the needy migrants closer to home. As long as the South thinks of humanity in terms of pale faces and refuses to share the earth and the fullness thereof with dark-skinned people, she writes about the Great Migration and its causes, there is nothing left for the Negro to do but to take up his bed and walk. A young race with its future before it should not and will not be robbed of its birthright, nor blighted by prejudice, nor used as a mudsill for the Anglo-Saxon. The Negro is fleeing in order to escape the barbarism in America, that would prove a greater bane to his soul than the African heathenism from which he was snatched by slave raiders over 300 years ago. Other of the pieces in this section of the book capture a darker side of the Great Migration. With an influx of vulnerable people, some are inevitably going to take advantage. One chapter is a study done of the people and churches in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago. One of the preoccupations that the researchers found, especially among those who were not part of the church, but also among those who were part of a church, was the pastors and church leaders who were clearly more interested in their pocketbooks than anything else. One interviewee put it this way, Church is a racket. The preachers want to line their pockets with gold. They're supposed to be leaders of the people, but they are fake leaders. At the same time, the researchers found churches full of remarkable welcome, where there was no division by social class and all could worship on a level playing field in a way that just wasn't the case in many white denominations at the time. (laughs) Or now. And of course... The church was and is both, depending on where and when and which way you're looking. The promise and peril of all churches, not only black ones. I don't really want to spend any more time editorializing um, this time around. I mostly wanted to share some interesting quotes and data with you um, from the pages that I read this week. And so we're going to wrap things up there. Thanks for listening, as always. We'll have one final episode of this little mini-series looking at the final section of the book, which turns its eyes to the church in the civil rights era of the 20th century and the rise of what is sometimes called black theology. So I hope you'll join me for that as well. And until then, bye.